Okay, let's do some quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. That's obvious. But with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. To reduce costs and headaches, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. Here's the thing. Information is power. Information is money. Literally, the currency of today's world of, of entrepreneurship is information. And if you could bring all of the, your, the information about your business into one dashboard, this is incredibly valuable. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform and one source of the truth about your business. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, access from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. And you're improving efficiency by bringing all of your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. This is so valuable. You just hit a button and you can see all the information about your business instead of having to like call five different departments and get all these emails and put it all together and make sense of it. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math, see how you'll profit with NetSuite. Backed by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash james, netsuite.com slash james netsuite.com slash james this isn't your average business podcast and he's not your average host this is the james altucher show today on the james altucher show I was a theater major for two years in college, and then I shifted to military and ancient history. So you ask yourself, holy cow, what is a guy like with that going to do with his life? And there were these handouts that the history department at the University of Colorado used to give. I remember it said, what to tell your parents about choosing history as a major to try to give you some arguments for your folks, right? Because what are you going to do with that, right? Well, here's the, the rub. I use both that history and the theater stuff every single day in my job, a job that did not exist when I went to college. So how could you possibly have gone to college to be trained for what I do for a living now? And yet it did exactly that, and I use it every day. It's the, it's the funny way, the serendipitous way life works that way. And, you know, again, if it, like it's interesting because obviously people view businesses as either successes or failures. But if you viewed that concept as an experiment, no experiment is really a failure because you learn, you learn something whether it works or it doesn't work. I think people who look at college as a way to get a job uh, or, or, or is a mistake unless you're going to be a doctor or a lawyer or something which absolutely the path is geared toward that. So, but le- so I actually have two teenagers right now and I, I try to give them advice on this too. Uh, as as all parents do. And I, I try to tell them not to fall into this habit, which is a leftover habit from an earlier age about jobs, right? The idea is to go and get an education that will allow you to work at this job. Uh, because first of all, we're all so unbelievably replaceable that if you want to have any sort of security, you're going to have to take what's very specific 
and unique about yourself and make that part of what your value is. Because if, 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 you, if you're able to somehow convert what makes you unique into something valuable, you are irreplaceable. So, so Dan, what I really want to talk about, if you're up for it, is I love your life. You have the ideal life that I want to have for myself. What is what what is that? What does that mean? Well, okay, you live in Eugene, Oregon, a, a peaceful town, and every few months you do these insanely intelligent, in-depth, three to. 75 hour podcast episodes, uh, about subjects you love <laughs> in history. You know, you get, I don't know how many downloads, let's just say a million plus downloads an episode, which means you're, you're, you're the most popular historian in the world. But you can as you constantly remind us, you are completely unqualified to be a historian. So you take, so it's like the, all the, all responsibility is off. Like you don't have to be a historian. You're just in a podcast. You're just a storyteller. And yet then you get into the most in-depth like views of history and, and like a historian, you have these, you know, incredible angles and interesting insights on what you're talking about. So like, if I want to read a book on Alexander the great, I can do that and get a bunch of facts or I can get the point of view via you from Alexander the Great's mother and boom, or, or you have the whole episode on, on pain and its role through history. And you bring up, I would say every two minutes, you bring up something where it's like, oh my God, I've never thought about it that way. And boom, like you just, you, you drive that home like for four hours or however long. And, and, uh, and, and, and I love the fact, and then I'm going to start asking you questions. I love the fact that, which I said before, but, and I want to hear it from your mouth, your, your quote unquote origin story. But I love the fact that you you were an amateur historian, you majored in history, you got to be a bachelor of arts in history. And you were encouraged by your mother-in-law around the kitchen table to, to basically, Hey, put it in a podcast. And you're like, well, I'm not a historian. Doesn't matter. And yet now you're, and again, once again, you're the most popular historian out there, whatever you want to call it, you could call it, but I'll, I'll call it that. And that to me is emblematic of today's times is that you could choose what you want to do, what you love. And there's ways to, to, to do it, to, to, to spread your message. If you have a, a unique point of view, which you do, you have a very hardcore point of view, hence it's hardcore history. And you're able to, from that point of view, do months and months of intense research, which you enjoy because you, you love history. And then you share it with us. And we enjoy it so much because we see your love for it, that you do this podcast, hardcore history, great, great podcast. You wrote this book. The end is always near uh, great book. And you, you kind of just share the knowledge in, in your own unique storytelling way. So that's one thing I want to talk about is how you sort of chose yourself to do this. And then your view on storytelling, which I find fascinating, and, and your view on uh, your, your particular angle on the relationship between hardship, history, where we are now, and where we can be heading. And But how does that all sound? How does that sound for a conversation? <laughs> sounds great. As a 54-year-old guy, you may have to repeat those questions as I forget them in oh, order. Oh, no. Oh. I'm, I'm, <laughs> I'm done talking now. You're just, 
you have to remember them and just for the right. I see. All right. Well, let me let me start at the beginning, which was uh, so much of the way that the show evolved, and you know this yourself as a podcaster was due to, I mean, it, we used to say that Seinfeld or whatever your favorite TV series is was not Seinfeld for the first 10 or 11 or 12 episodes or whatever it takes to go from concept to the evolution based on listener feedback, what works, what doesn't, into something that sort of solidifies once the concrete kind of hardens. Oh, and oh our origi- uh, by the way, do you mind if I interrupt when there's something I don't not understand? Not at all. And also, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take some notes. But... Um, uh, like you mentioned Seinfeld and you're right. I think it was not until like nobody knew what Seinfeld was season one. It was not till like season three, I think that they really found their, their writing voice, their acting voice and so on. And, and as they say it in today's world, Seinfeld probably would have been canceled in its first season uh, without it being given a chance. But how long do you think it takes for someone who loves a topic and is expressing it in a brand new medium for themselves? How long do you think it takes someone to find their voice, to, to, to kind of hit their stride? You know, that's a complicated question because I think the variables will come into play. So, for example, um, I used to, I did a show called Common Sense, a podcast, which was based on the, the radio programs I used to do. So for something that is an adaptation of something you were doing in a different medium, it's, you could find your footing more, more quickly because you've already established certain foundational things and, and you're working more on how they translate rather than how you get the show together from ground zero. Hardcore History was the first thing I ever created from scratch as a podcast. So I did have to go through that whole Seinfeld, it's not Seinfeld for 11 episodes or whatever thing. And, and the, the entire show when we started was nothing but those weird, twisty point of view things that you mentioned earlier. It was completely devoid of context. It was the way we would discuss it when we were history majors over lunch. We'd say, hey, you know, what if Alexander the Great and Julius Caesar, da-da-da-da-da. And, and so the first couple of shows, which are like 20 minutes, 30 minutes, 40 minutes, that's all it was. And so the feedback from listeners often was, hey, we like all that weird stuff you're throwing at us, but we really don't understand the context. So little by little, we would add, enough, you know, we would basically add enough context so you got the joke, for lack of a better um, phrase. And slowly but surely that grew into what we have. And, and much of what we do and the way we do it is in response to all those things you pointed out. Me not being a historian, for example. If you're going to add all this context, well, at what point are you teaching history, right? At what point have you crossed that line between I'm just talking about twisty, fun things I like versus, no, you're practicing medicine without a license, right? Um, and so we developed all these things over time that you would need to, to plausibly do this as a fan or as a guy with a bachelor's degree or as an author writing a book. For example, we call uh, one of those things audio footnotes, which is essentially what, what you'll hear me do when I'll quote some historian to back up something I just said, you know, in a book you would footnote it in, in audio, what do you do? And so you have to develop little techniques and that's part of what helps make you, you know, 11 or 12 or 13 shows into Seinfeld. Seinfeld is developing your ways of getting around. And you understand this from your entrepreneurial background. How do you get around these challenges that are not apparent until you dive in the pool, right? That don't, don't manifest until you've done it for a little while. And what you end up with on the other side is that finished product that bears some resemblance to your initial concept in the first few tries, but has taken on a sort of a life of its own after a certain point. So I can only take credit for some of this. The listeners are the one, for example, who said, make it longer, make it longer, because I kept apologizing. Yeah, yeah. Your, and, first, yeah. your first episode was 15 minutes. Yeah, and now they're and, like and, three and a half hours. Yeah, and we, we put a big apology. The first time we did one that was longer than an hour, I said, I'm really sorry. This seems ir- irresponsible and everything else. And everybody wrote back and said, we have pause buttons. 
and, and coming from radio, a little light bulb went out over my head and I went, yeah, they do have pause buttons. I never thought of that. So that's part of the listener feedback that helps you develop the format in ways that you never, I never would have thought, let's do a six hour podcast on history. I mean, that would never have, have come. And, and what's more, had you told me that that's what I was going to do, I might not have done it. You know, it's, it's, it's interesting though, because like, and, and I'll bring up Seinfeld again and your podcast. It's hard to tell if Seinfeld was a better or worse sitcom than let's say other popular sitcoms at that time. I don't, I don't know. An example might be Cheers or Mad About You or whatever, but, but Seinfeld was definitely different, right? It was this quote unquote show about nothing. It was the first sitcom, as far as I know, where every single main character had their own storyline in every single episode. And the, the, main, the, the central theme of the writing was no one should ever learn anything, which was kind of antithetical to most TV shows at that time. No, so, but I love that. <laughs> yeah. And, and so, and so that's how they kind of became different. It's easy for, it's easier for people to tell when something is different as opposed to better or worse. And so I'm just curious for you, like, how do you, because your, your podcast stood out so much in you know, albeit it was early, but still there's a lot of history podcasts. Yours stands out. What do you think makes yours different? The only thing that I that's different is me. I mean, because otherwise we're all working from the same stuff. So it's a point of view thing, like you mentioned earlier. I mean, we're all, you know, all the history podcasts are using history books. They're using primary sources. They're using facts, names, dates. And so it's, I think it's got to be uh, the way you weave a story together, maybe. And that's where the storyteller part comes in. I mean, if you think back to your favorite professors in school, and of course, I think back to a lot of history professors, the ones that really captivated you were the ones that reached you. And I guarantee you, they didn't reach you simply by throwing out a bunch of names and dates and facts. They reached you by figuring out a way to touch something inside you. And that's normally extracted through some sort of context or storytelling or a sort of a narrative kind of thing where they will bring up something that just speaks to you. And so what I try to do is bring up these things, you know, you, you know this, you sort of self-select your audience over time. Uh, they stay with you if they like what, you, what you're doing and they get rid of you if they don't. But if you just do what you want to do in the show, you're kind of self-selecting an audience that you can reasonably think will like it if you like it also. And right. so I've gotten, to, yeah, I've gotten to the point where I, if I like it, I go, oh, they'll love this. And so that, that kind of determines my, my inclusion or exclusion sort of variable. Right. And so, so A, your interests intersect with some group of people in your audience, or you, you give people two avenues to like your podcast. One avenue is if they're obsessed with uh, the Spartans and you do an episode on the Spartans, you get that part of your audience. The second is you're a great storyteller and that's your unique voice as opposed to people just reciting, like you say, reciting a bunch of facts about the Civil War. You're a, a, a great storyteller and, and your passion and love for the topic comes out. And so you hit that part of your audience that didn't know they were interested in Spartans, but they love you telling a story of people taking their kids to public executions and so on. <laughs> and I think we cheat, though. I have to be honest with you. I think we cheat, and I think the cheat is, and I, I, I tell people this all the time, I mean, when you have the entire history of the world to choose your stories from, well, I mean, that's like shooting fish in a barrel. You pick a story that's innately interesting and you figure, okay, if I can, if I screw this up, I'm an idiot, right? Because they're so innately interesting. So I feel like having 
such a width and breadth of potential stories to choose from gives me gives gives all history podcasters a huge edge up from the beginning. Even if you're not a great storyteller, if you're working with a great story, uh, you're 75% of the way there. Right. So, well, that's an interesting question because you can you can argue that the history the common man knows about has been focus grouped over thousands of years. So I know about Alexander the Great, but I don't know what king necessarily followed him because the past 2000 years has focus group that the story of Alexander the Great is the story I should focus on. And, and, but you don't always focus on just Alexander the Great. You might take some of these obscure, lesser known stories from history that ha have not been blessed by, you know, generations of textbooks and generations of storytellers. You kind of find more nuances, I think, than, than the most popular history stories. Well, some of them are just inherently weird. Like you mentioned the one that we did on pain. Um, it, it's, it's really an examination of our enjoyment of watching others in pain as an entertainment form. And we sort of juxtaposition our modern enjoyment of fake violence from, from the past where our ancestors would have thought that was the pansy way to do it. You know, if you want to watch something really good, you watch real violence. And we had our artists, I have a wonderful artist who does the artwork for our shows, and when we were talking about what kind of artwork we wanted for it, I said, can we juxtapose, like, Vegas, the night they have a big boxing match where you drive down the strip, and, you know, everywhere you look are those giant billboards showing you the fight that's about to happen that night. And he said, yeah, yeah, yeah. And so we created a, a, a bunch of images that showed people having snacks while another person's being beheaded while in the background you see the giant Vegas style billboards you know telling people that it's coming and it was a I thought it was a wonderful way to show that this idea of violence as entertainment goes way back um it was the deepest darkest episode we've ever done though and I had great friends and fans who said I could not get through that and we decided that's that's going to be our dark floor for a while probably won't go any darker than that one but that's that's kind of interesting because uh you, a I kind of feel pain or at least struggle is a big theme of a lot of your podcasts even going back to your you know common ground the the your show and and uh uh you know with the uh, this is a little tangent on how you chose yourself to do this despite being a quote-unquote amateur but on the pain one i thought it was fascinating because you said people would bring you know, their kids, for instance, to public executions as entertainment, then you said, well, maybe that's the exact same thing as taking them to, let's say, a movie where there's torture and executions. Maybe it activates the same part of the brain, but somehow it's a little safer because it's not happening in reality. And then there's kind of this third generation where now we're like, we get a warning in advance, like, watch out, something bad's about to happen. This is your warning. It's a trigger. And, you know, so we had uh, 90,000 years of, people taking their kids to watch pain in, in either, you know, in reality or through a movie. And now we have 10 years of the warning or 20 years of the warning. And I wonder how that's changing society because, and here's the real question is to some extent watching these things was a safe way for us to experience it and learn from it. And now we're not getting that benefit. It's a it's an interesting question that I'm not sure I'm qualified to answer. Because oh, there you I, go. It's well, not qualified well, to answer. Well, but 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 here's here's why I would say so. For any number of reasons, including the fact that I don't absorb enough popular culture today to speak intelligently about it, except to say 
that I'm not sure the premise is entirely correct, because while I see the warnings that you're talking about, absolutely, I also think that the that the material you're seeing in the popular culture is more violent and more extreme and more realistic than before. So maybe maybe the two go together. Um, but I mean, try showing our one of our good, really good shoot 'em up violent or 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 physically um, the horror movies maybe to a 1950s movie going audience, and and imagine what happens to that crowd. Um, so so I mean, in some ways, just yes, I see it's funny we're, we're more easily triggered, and yet the material that we have to trigger us goes much farther over the line than it used to. So I see your point. I, I I'm not educated enough to know uh, if I agree with it or not. I wonder if you constantly finding that line where you feel you're not qualified as opposed to like, oh yeah, I could tell a story about this. I wonder if that's also a key component of your popularity. It basically, by being vulnerable that way and by reducing your status to essentially the level of the listener, you become more likable as opposed to saying, <laughs> I'm a historian, so you better listen to me because this is what happened. And in fact, you have read more than anybody else on these topics. You you did study history. What makes a historian anyway? Is it really a piece of paper with the words PhD on it or the letters? Uh, I don't know. Uh, you're, you're not really an I, but amateur I, You know me. what, though? I, I, th I think it... I think all, you know, we, we, have, we use the saying around here a lot, turning lemons into lemonade. And anytime we have one of those disadvantages, and I know it sounds like a cliche, but it became an opportunity for a workaround that had a wonderful serendipitous uh, unexpected benefit. For example, this not being a historian uh, started me using historians as part of the podcast. But then you get to these stories where um, there's not one particular viewpoint, right, where historians can disagree. So then we started saying, well, you know, Dan Carlin's not qualified to tell you about history, but this guy says this. And then you'd say, but this other person says that. That opened up an entirely new world in the show where listeners would write and said, I had no idea that this wasn't like math. I didn't understand that there was multiple potential, you know, like a Rashomon or kind of approach to it. So all of these things that I did to compensate for my inadequacies ended up turning into a wonderful creative pillar in the show that has been like a seed that was planted that sprung into a life of its own that, that's a part of the essential makeup of the thing now that people like, but that we never envisioned when we designed it. And I like this aspect that, uh, you, you know, a, it's here. Here's almost like a formula. Like A, what's what's your passion? What story do you want to tell? B, analyze your disadvantages in understanding this topic and make and figuring out the ways, the myriad ways these disadvantages can work for you. And that seems like a good uh, formula also to to aid or to to buffer the storytelling. That's exactly right. You, you're a very good analyst. You've analyzed this very quickly and very well. But but again, I can't take credit for it because just like we said with Seinfeld, you come up with what you think is a decent idea and then the idea takes a life of its own. And if you're lucky, you can hammer it and mold it in directions you want. And But in certain ways, I would suggest it's out of your control. One of the ways it was out of our control was we started podcasting in 2005. And as you well know, the environment was so unbelievably different back then. Yeah. And as the environment changes... Once again, you evolve, you mold uh, uh, this, the, the, you know, what we do is kind of plastic here and we've all sort of adjusted, whether it's through ad models that you have to add or online things that be, you know, whatever it might be, we've all had to grow with this medium. And that's also stretched and, and evolved and changed the work that we all do. So, so when you first getting back to like, when you first started hardcore history, uh, I, you were telling the story that, you know, you're, 
you, you were going on and on at the kitchen table with your mother-in-law and she's like sick of it already. And she's like, why don't you just do this as a podcast? And what happened? And you, and you said, no, no, I'm not a historian. Well, you know, I've, I've been doing radio since the early 90, 1990s. And, and so when we started doing podcasting, uh, I, I was doing basically a version of what we did on the radio, but I always, I was famous for these dinnertime discussions that would just, you know, if, if you're a guy like me talking about the stuff we talked in that pain fatainment episodes, no big deal. But if you're around civilians, as I like to call them at the dinner table, and you have those kind of discussions, uh, I think she was just trying to change one of my bloody gory dinnertime conversations. But she said, why don't you do this as a podcast? And I said, oh, I can't do that. I said, I'm not qualified uh, uh, to to talk about history like that. I only have a bachelor's degree. And if there's one thing a, a, a guy with a bachelor's degree in history knows is he's not a historian. And she said, I didn't realize you had to be a historian to tell stories. And that's the first example of what you and I've been talking about this whole show about where the light bulb goes on over your head and you go, wow, I didn't think about it that way. Now that of course requires that you design the thing with your inadequacies and 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 blind spots in mind but by this time i'd been in the business long enough to have designed several different uh shows so that that was more of a fun challenge than a real impediment at that time like i said i think there's some luck involved too timing everything else but uh but i definitely have fallen into it my kids always say you know when i say what do you want to do for a living they'll say something oh, i just want to do what you do you like your work and, and i say well wait a minute you don't know how many bad jobs it took to get to the to this one <laughs> so but but yeah i'm i'm this is the life for me right now and it took me 50 years to get here <laughs> yeah I, I i know the feeling i'm 52 by the way when did you start when did, when did your memory start hurting after at what age did you start forgetting what you had for breakfast that day oh that is so rough of a question for me because you forget you know, I, I, <laughs> I no i always i always tell my wife you know everybody's got strengths and weaknesses and my big strength has always been my memory and my my ability, uh, the quickness with which I could access it. I always say I have so much more data in the hard drive, and that's a great advantage. But the bus speed sucks now. Um, yeah. It just it takes forever to retrieve info. Um, you know, that's a good question. And I find it, like I said, particularly hard because this has always been one of my great strengths. I feel like one of those really fast athletes who's getting slower. Uh, I think I started noticing it five or six years ago, but it's, tr I find it troubling. I can't tell the difference between what's normal and what's pre-dementia. Yeah. Well, I, I, I could tell you from every, cause I asked this of everybody over 50 cause I got so disturbed by it. It's not pre-dementia. It's just 50. <laughs> my mom said it. My mom said that if, if you forgot where you put your keys, that's normal. If you forgot what keys do, you're in trouble. <laughs> that's a good point. I hope your mom's okay. Is she okay? She's okay. She, she right. knows what to do with the key. Exactly. So tell me, tell me what is, what is storytelling? What is a story? Um, okay. That's hard for me because, uh, you know, there are, there are two ways to tell a story. One is learning how to tell stories. And a lot of people do this. You go to school, you, you know, there's, 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 there's known formulas for putting stories together. And then there are people, and I, I mean, I guess I have to put myself in this category that do it without thinking. Um, that, that have, uh, and I think there's a gene and I think every society produces people like this. I think that's where you get your oral, oral storytellers that are part of pretty much every traditional society you can name. Um, and I think, I think whatever those people have genetics wise is what someone like yours truly has, where it, it, it's not a conscious thing. I don't have to sit down and follow a formula. It's a, it's a natural way that, 
Um, you know, they used to say, Mozart used to say that uh, he, he saw the music in his head, gleich alles zusammen, at the same time all together. And I feel like that's how I see these stories. I don't have to think about them. They roll off my tongue. And I think, I do think that's genetic because I have no other, I have no other explanation for why that is. And yet, and yet, um, I mean, it's like you, you, you do months and months of research on a topic uh, and we'll get to in a second how you choose your topics. So you do months and months of research on a topic you love and do you have, when you sit down to do the podcast, are you just speaking extemporaneously, like just off the top of your head based on that you have so much knowledge right then, uh, you know, accumulated? Or do you have some sort of outline of how you're going to get, you, do you have a bullet points of all the issues you want to get to? And, and then, you know, you have faith that you're going to connect the dots in, in your storytelling or, or what do you, what do you do? Um, so it's a, a friend of mine who's in the music business described it as performance art. And, and it, what it really is now is it's edited performance art. It didn't used to be so edited. Now it's pre for, for exactly the reasons you and I were just mentioning with memory and everything else. It's much and because we're doing five hour shows sometimes. So it's edited performance art now. Um, well, first of all, there's no way I always tell people there's no way for me to learn everything you need to know in the months leading up to a podcast. I have to pick topics that I already have a nice foundation of knowledge for before we even start. And then all of the, the months of, of research is simply to update the information that I used to know, uh, uh, to, to flesh it out. So in other words, to build on the old foundation. So, I mean, people will write me all the time and say something like, Dan, can you please talk about 16th century Eastern India or something? And I'm always flattered that they think I'm, I'm smart enough to just, hey, yeah, sure, I'll talk about it. But really, everything that we talk about on the podcast is something that once upon a time I was really interested in, learned a lot about, and, and just decided to update my, and add to my knowledge uh, for the show. So in terms of what we do, uh, it wouldn't sound the way it sounds if there was any script or anything. So there's no script. I usually have... Um, quotations and things that I want to add into the show that I have uh, like little bits of paper in the book or little notes so that I can find it quickly and I'll be in the moment talking and I'll go, aha, there's going to be a good spot for that next quote that I know I have coming up. Um, and, and that's more how I do it. Some days um, I will write a little something, a note to myself at the end of the day, reminding myself for the next day where the hell I was and what the hell I was thinking. Sort of the way a computer programmer will leave notes for himself uh, uh, saying, okay, this is what you were thinking when you left off here. Uh, but that's about the extent of it. I mean, it's probably why it takes so long. But at the same time, you know, when I'm done, I, I, I turn the podcast off. I go sit in a hot shower or something. And all of the ideas that, that people like about the show come to me then. It's why I have to do my own research because it's during the research that these ideas come to you and these twists and these, oh, this is kind of funky. And, and as the thought comes to me, I write it down. And usually I just look at those a few times while I'm doing the show, you know, over a couple of months. But, but in my head, it starts like Alice Suzaman to all sort of fall together. Uh, but I do think that's genetic. I think storytellers the world over probably can do it that way. And I think they have a natural way of telling something. My grandfather had it. He would just sit at a bar and tell you a story and you would just listen. And, you know, it's, it's interesting because you have this sense when listening to you that this is your party and all the listeners are simply invited to it and they can stay at the party or not. Like you're talking about what excites you, what, what you love, and that's what kind of fuels the, aha, now I'm going to talk about this. But yeah, now it's connected to this. But then this historian says this. So you get, so the storytelling, rather than being like this sort of classic arc of the hero style, is more like 
moving you through all the points of this part of history that you're fascinated by and it's your fascination and why and the nuances you're getting out of it because you're just you're not just listing facts you're you're telling a story that that's what's keeping the the uh listener engaged is my guess again i'm trying to just break it down well and something else and i don't know how important this is really we just do it and we think it's important but that doesn't mean it is um we don't like the idea of falling into any ruts or patterns or templates and so if we told the last story really linearly, for example, you know, A to B to C to D, and sometimes you have to with the really complicated ones or they're hard to follow, then it then it might be fun to start the next one at the end and switch it up. Or or it might be fun to do like that pain fatainment one that we did that was so weird and just dove into some weird ideas rather than uh, events or eras or personages. Um, but I think that that's interesting for us to switch it up like that. I think it keeps it fresh. And I think the listeners kind of probably enjoy not exactly knowing how it might go when we throw it out there, if that makes sense. Yeah, and I think also the listener likes the fact that you, and again, you remind them you're not a historian. So they sort of feel like, okay, I'm going to listen to this episode of Hardcore History, and I'm not a historian either, just like Dan. And now I can go to a cocktail party, and I'm going to talk about these things just like Dan just did because he's one of us. <laughs> Well, but let me let me suggest, and I, I do this sometimes because I, I grew up, I grew up at the tail end, and you did too. If you're 52, I'm 54. Uh, we grew up at the tail end of of an era of history writing that they don't do anymore. Um, that that as history has become more of a science and less of a of a humanities oriented subject, you know, more data driven, more peer reviewed, uh, less subjective. You've gotten a much harder science with much better uh, and more reputable evidence. But what you lose in that transition is some of the humanness. So if you go read a history book from 80 years ago, you're going to get a ton of the suppositions from the historian that you would that you would not see today. But sometimes these historians are really august, interesting individuals who've studied this subject their entire lives. You kind of want to know what their gut feeling is after all those years, about what they think. And, and they get into the side of human history that's not quantifiable. And I feel like that's because that's an era where if you don't have evidence data today it's hard to to even explore those things we do in the book a little bit that's where things like toughness comes into play right it's it's these things that you couldn't support in a peer-reviewed study but historians a hundred years ago wouldn't have worried about that and so you ask these questions about is this a thing i mean is this something that's real and if it's real if we can't study anymore you know who can even talk about it well that's the place where dan carlin can sort of play right the place where it's sort of left to an amateur like myself because you would frown upon an academic that would run into territory like that without any data, you know? So so I feel like it allows us to play in some of the human humanities style realm of, of history. That's a little what had to be given up in order to get the better science type of history we have today, if that makes sense. There, yeah. there was a trade-off and it worked out for the best, but we lost some fun things in the interim and that's where the idiot amateurs can play. Well, well, again, I appreciate you saying you're an idiot amateur, but it's not true. But uh, uh, <laughs> I, I like- the I'm gonna let you data drive that and figure <laughs> out a way to support that evidence. I, I like the idea, though, that you're you're allowed to, by by the way you qualify yourself, you're allowed to wonder out loud things. And you, using that word wonder in a different way, it kind of does create then 
this sense of wonder among the listener, which is that, oh, I never thought about it that way because, because they never thought about it that way because there might not be data uh, supporting it. But hey, it's a, a unique point of view. It might be true. And it's an interesting way to look at it. You're, you're, you're given permission to wonder and you give the listener permission to wonder about things that historians are no longer allowed to just simply wonder about without proving it. Listen, if I'm good at anything, and I, I have a lot of history majors that I went to school with that were that were very good at this too, I think that people are hardwired certain ways. And some people, for example, are mathematically hardwired, and they see their brains in a mathematical, they see the world in a mathematical sort of sense. I think some people are born with the ability to have a natural empathy for history. They get it. They're able to read stories about people who lived a long time ago and feel it, right? They don't, you don't have to you don't have to get them interested in history. They're naturally into it. Those are people like myself, for example. Now, I think my ability lies in being able to pick out those points that you mentioned that are inherently interesting. You know, the, the Rod Serling Twilight Zone moments of history that anybody could go, wow, that's fascinating. And that a history major or a person who thinks in the world history, they don't have to have me do that. They already think that way. I'm good at crossing that barrier a little bit, like maybe a mathematician would be in, in, in teaching people who don't understand math about it. I'm able to get them to see these fun parts and have them forget a little bit about names and dates and boring things they can't remember and have them realize that there's a reason every great storyteller in the world has mined the, the stories of the past for, I mean, it, every situation you can possibly imagine has happened before practically. And, and I mean, why, why would you make something up when you could go find something? I mean, the story we just did on Alexander the Great's mom has multiple stories that if I actually told you this as part of a fantasy tale, you wouldn't believe it. I mean, it wouldn't even sound credible. Yeah. And it's interesting. I wonder if the rise of podcasts like yours or even the rise of, dare I say it, reality shows, there's so much actual content in reality that we no longer really need as much fiction in order to safely play out these slightly more dangerous scenarios in our lives. You know, I don't know about that because I keep feeling like, um, I keep feeling like every time I, I say something like that, like, you know, you almost feel when you look at the, the amount of content that's out there that how could anybody come up with something appreciably new or novel or different because everybody's producing so much stuff. Surely, you know, everything under the sun has been tried. And then somebody comes up with some amazingly new, creative, fun way to look at something and you just go, wow, that's incredible. I mean, every time I think that I would close that door and just say, it's not going to happen, I, somebody shocks me with that. And so... Um, I mean, I'm not even sure if that answers your question, but you got me thinking about that because I've often done that where you kind of go, hmm, you know, maybe, uh, maybe there's just nothing all that interesting out there anymore. Maybe everybody's already figured out all the ways it's going to go. And then somebody will find a fantasy story, uh, that just speaks to us. I mean, I remember as a kid thinking that all that was done and then, then Star Wars came out and now you have a space opera that's, I always think about how much these movies have made from one person's idea, right? But, but. Back then, I mean, I was I was into Star Trek. I was reading all these space things, and you would have thought, oh, there's nothing new anybody could come up with. Well, you know, who the heck knows? It, the human mind and creativity is so freaking amazing that even with all these outlets we have now and all this content that's being produced, uh, I think we're still going to get wowed on a regular basis. But you think about does it, that like, even answer your does that yeah. even answer your question? Okay, sorry. <laughs> uh, you know, all, all we got is questions, so that's there are right, no answers. Me too. Me too. <laughs> so, so, but 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 the stories you mentioned are you can argue are echoes from history, like you yes. know, Mark Mark Twain's 
quote or not quote, I don't know, but you know, history doesn't repeat itself, but it does rhyme. You can argue Star Wars, yep. the, the story of Jesus set in a science fiction Western format and, and Star Trek. Look, the history of exploration is, is in every single textbook in the world. So Star Trek is just a futuristic, you know, uh, fictional, uh, uh, investigation into that. Oh, I was having the conversation with my kids the other day. They're studying Shakespeare, and I was explaining to them that what makes Shakespeare so interesting, even if you don't like Shakespeare, is that as far as we know most of the time in some of these cases, how's that for disclaimers, <laughs> he, he established certain sorts of storylines that you just see repeated all the time in our modern stuff. I mean, sitcoms, everything. I mean, he came up with these angles and situations and, and reaction sorts of moments that just get replayed all the time. And so, I mean, I, 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 mean, I feel a little bit like that about it where you know star trek absolutely analogy to the age of discovery a new way to, to show it right a new twist the star wars i you know i still look at star wars today and think it's a wonderful uh, and and maybe maybe it's been openly declared this but i mean it's the fall of the republic and the rise of the roman empire kind of isn't yeah it? yeah it's uh it's it's a lot of uh, government transitions. It's the story of right now. You have, you know, isolationist versus a republic versus whatever. Like this, you know, you could kind of look at every point in history and say Star Wars political systems, the religion, the story itself mimics some other uh, uh, incident in, in our past. And it, isn't that what art should do too? When you, I mean, even the event, even the the Marvel movies, which everybody decries as a bunch of CGI comic book type stuff, they've been able to. I mean, I was watching, I forgot which one it was, but the one where they were talking about trade offs between uh, uh, security and liberty, basically, and you have this character, Captain America, who's essentially like the perfect test case for the frog in the hot water theory, a guy who's literally transported from a, a 1940s version of America. You bring him to the modern America, he hasn't had time to adjust through all the intervening years so he gets to have the reaction of a frog in hot water right and I, you know, I think okay that is a marvelous mirror to hold up to our modern life here in a way that would have been impossible without the the time travel element and yet it's just the kind of thing we would do in the podcast it's just the kind of thing that a wonderful fantasy author would use to juxtaposition i mean my favorite my favorite scene in any movie, and you know it because I mentioned it in the book, you know, ad nauseum, but I love that scene from the end of the Planet of the Apes where the Statue of Liberty is sticking out of the sand. Yeah. Uh, and the reason I love it is because it's a moment where everyone in the theater at the exact same time sees that image and instantly knows what the whole movie's been about. At the, I mean, I love that moment, but someone told me, and I've never confirmed it, that that exact scene was written by Rod Serling, which would be just so perfect, right? That, that, that the scene that just seems so twisty was written by the guy who is probably the best modern person at those kind of twists. But I love that kind of stuff. Talk about holding a mirror up to our modern times with a single brain-shattering image. And 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 look, that also reflects the importance of history in even these fictional stories. Like they could have told as I believe the original novel did, they could have told the whole story without bringing up any of Earth's history. I, th I think the original novel was by Pierre Bull, and I think it actually did take place on another planet. I'm not 100% sure. I read I read it as a kid when it was on the ABC, you know, movies of the week. Yeah, they, yeah, but, yeah. So that's when I saw it. Like, I was <laughs> seven or eight years old, and I and for whatever reason, I, I read the book. They and, have marathons. And, yeah. And, uh, uh, but but the symbolism of history, like you said, it could, it, it, it one symbol changes the entire movie and that's how important the, the story of history is why which is why i think so many people are fascinated by history like they're they're not listening to 
a, a, a self-improvement podcast or a, um, you know, interview podcast. They're listening to these stories of history so they could better understand themselves, I think. What I always say is that the moment where history and science fiction meets is right now, this moment where the, the, the instant that we live right now, because right ahead of us is any number of different outcomes, paths, choices. Um, one will be the one we take and everything else will be fantasy, but we don't know which one it is yet. Five minutes from now, it's history. So, I mean, I love the idea that there's a connection between the hard history of facts and data and the speculative science fiction fantasy future, which could be five minutes from now, you know? Right, and and it's interesting. I'm, t I'm writing that, that. That quote's great. Uh, <laughs> the, the I'm gonna I'm gonna steal it. But um, fair enough. <laughs> the, uh, the the interesting thing is that uh, uh, you know you predict because maybe of your fascination with history and your study of history, I feel like you've predicted so many moments that have happened later. Like in a lot, you know, in your show, uh, you know, I have the notes here. I'm gonna just look it up. Um, in your in your show in your common sense show you're you you know even from 2014 2013 you predict a lot of the things that are happening today like you talk about uh uh let me bring it up the the specter of dissent that that perhaps our worst nightmare is not islamic terrorism but it's you know critical level levels of domestic dissent which we're we're seeing now actually 6 years later we're actually seeing it play out and you know, and there's several cases you have like that uh, in, in your those episodes where I think your understanding of history kind of gave you some indication of what, quote unquote, the science fiction of the future would look like. I actually was having a conversation with someone the other day where I said that I actually feel as though living in this era that we live in right now with the unsettled nature of it, the tribalism uh, the anger, the sense of um, trepidation that we all have about the current situation. I feel like I'm learning about other eras in history that were like this and that were harder to understand before I went through it myself. So I was telling this person the other day that I remember growing up in the 1970s and thinking about the 1950s uh, Red Scare, the, the rabid McCarthy communism era, and just thinking that it seemed so stupid, just so ridiculous. Like, how could they even believe? You know, it seemed silly by the 1970s. You didn't understand. It was irrational, right? We looked at it like, like we'd gone through this period of madness, right? But I'm looking at our era now going, okay, I can, I can see how that madness happens now. I can, and it, it's, it's a collective human thing. We tend to blame individuals. It's this president or it's this guy. No, it's a collective. So it's not mania. It's not hysteria. But it is some sort of collective zeitgeist. And it happens all the time in human history. It, it, the, the coloring and the specifics and the variables are all different. But the general sort of irrationality in the, in the, in the mood seems remarkably similar. And so you mentioned uh, that era like in the late 60s when we had all the bombings. And it's quite shocking if you actually go back and read the late 60s, early 70s, and the domestic uh, strife that we had in places like the United States, how many bombings, attempted bombings, and bomb threats we would have in any given year. I mean, today we would, we would institute martial law with our current mood today if we had 1971 levels of domestic bombing. Um, but it, it's one of those things where you turn around and you go, okay, once you live through this period where where the world seems to be going crazy 
all of a sudden I feel like I have a little bit more sympathy for my ancestors or people from a couple generations ago when they were living in, say, the rise of fascism or uh, or maybe the turn of the century when the Industrial Revolution completely changed everybody's sense of... I mean, I was reading a book the other day that talked about just how the imposition of clocks and the organization of time on a fixed scale and, I mean, how it changed everybody's rhythm. So, I mean, we're going through, obviously, one of these really transformative, scary, sort of irrational periods and now all of a sudden I feel like I understand all the other ones from history. So so in in that sense, I, I do feel like like studying the past and talking about history eventually gives us a little historical empathy. And then living through something similar the way we are now really helps me to understand and I think helps us all to understand a little bit better how people could seem irrational in another age and what it feels like to live in an age like that. Yeah, like I I um I, I I think you're right that that understanding history and 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 again perhaps understanding it as an amateur without kind of professional reputation at stake so you could look at all the nuances without having to have proof or, or and speculate and speculate in ways that would be irresponsible for an academic you right know? right and that, I think that does help us to understand our current era like I, I saw where where one would see most of these things a friend of mine posted on Facebook that he's so disgusted because we're living in the most polarized era ever. And I had to call him up and remind him, uh, you know, in the 1850s and the 1860s, like particularly, I think it was like 1858, I forget the year, there was a, a senator that on the Senate floor- Oh, he got beaten with the cane, right? Yeah, tried, tried to beat to death another senator with a cane. Like that was, and then we had a civil war. So that was probably more polarizing than now. And it's funny how though, kind of just questioning history and looking at it, you know, does remind you of these things that, hey, it's going to be all right in the long run, hopefully. I mean, again, your book is titled The End is Always Near. It always feels like the end is always near, but we seem to get through these situations. Here's the one thing, though, that I would throw on as a sort of a caveat to that. We And I love the word variables, obviously. I've used it multiple times in this conversation already, but we have a lot of modern variables that, that, that are uh, unprecedented. And so don't allow us to create historical analogies to help us feel better. I mean, the social media aspect right now is fascinating to me because I think you can see what it's doing already. You know, the, the canary in a coal mine states, as I like to call them, are the most repressive ones. Uh, the Irans, the Chinas, the Russias, the places that are most threatened by something like uh, an open internet and social media. But even the, the states that are more insulated from that, like our own, for example, in the United States, we're feeling the pressures of it too. I mean, look at the election system and social media. And I mean, we're all starting to see a bunch of 21st century disruptive challenges affecting 20th century frameworks and systems. And... I don't have to tell you that that we've had many eras in history where where old systems have come into conflict with um with new variables in ways that are well, creative destruction's an interesting word, isn't it? Um, you can have that on a societal level. I mean, uh, when I was back learning history, we used to talk about things like uh, the Napoleonic Wars as creative destruction, the World Wars as creative destruction, the Civil Wars creative destruction. Sounds great if you're in the creative stage afterwards, but if you're in the destruction stage during it, um, well... You know, in the book, one of the variables we talk about are nuclear weapons. And so you could say mm -hmm. to yourself, well, we've had tons of global wars between the great powers before, which is true. And you could say, and we've always gotten through it before, which is true. But the variable that we never had in the past is the kind of ability to destroy uh, on a scale hitherto unimaginable in the past. So does that change this equation where we can feel safe because... 
you know, history doesn't repeat, but it sometimes rhymes. <laughs> no, that's a great point because, you know, for instance, right now we have, because of the ease of connection between people, not just in social media, but physically, like I could take a plane right now and 14 hours later land in China. Uh, you have some, suddenly a pandemic from a laboratory in Wuhan is affecting people in China a few weeks later. I mean, in New York City a few weeks later. So that that's unprecedented. Although you can look at the flu in, you know, 1917, 1918, 1919, killed 20 million people, obviously much more dangerous, it seems, than our current situation. But again, there's there's variables, as you say, that are different. Well, and, and listen, I mean, one of the things that that's a variable are are the things that we haven't even I mean, I have, I have a book that I love and I can't do the math because I'm, you know, not that smart, but it's called uh, Global Catastrophic Risks. Uh, or global catastrophic risk. It's edited by Nick Bostrom, who works for the Center oh, yeah. of yeah, yeah, of, of Oxford. Um, he's like part physicist, part philosopher, I think. And so he edits the book, and um, and each chapter is by a different expert talking from their expertise about something that might destroy the world. From you know, like we have a, a volcanist who's talking about you know if volcanoes destroyed the earth. And and in this book, one of the things that's so fascinating is 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 Bostrom's point, and I forgot the analogy he used, but he was basically talking about how lucky humankind has been so far in its discoveries um, and how there's no guarantee that that will continue. And so one of the chapters in the book uh, was on... Uh, uh, nanotechnology. And it was discussing, you know, what if we created some sort of nanotech that ate uh, uh, dirt and that reproduced or something. It was one of those things where you just turn around and go, his point was, if you messed up, on that, you'd never get another chance to mess up. Same thing with AI. Uh, he wrote a whole book on AI that he developed from one chapter on AI in the Catastrophic Risk book. And in that book, he talked about that moment where AI, uh, where a computer or, or artificial intelligence learns how to improve itself. And he said, the moment that happens, you'll never be able to keep up with it, and it's too late. And, and so he was talking about ways we could off ourselves unintentionally as part of our normal discovery. There was a book by a science historian, James Burke, who did Connections in the Day the Universe Changed. It was called The Axe Maker's Gift. And it was about humankind's um, almost need to innovate. And if this innovation wouldn't eventually be the death of us, because of all these innovations that we do to make life better, to make our environment bend to our will, and all these things that have been such a boon so far, if that doesn't turn out to be like the Greek tragic flaw that brings us down in the end. Yeah, it's it's interesting. Like uh, I guess Yuval Harari sort of touches upon this in Sapiens that there's yes. this, there's this critical point in human history where when humans invented fire or discovered fire, this is the first time that essentially any species uh, could could destroy an area so much larger than just the space they inhabit. Like you could use fire to destroy an entire forest and kill everything in it. And then from that point on, we're we became like a species of, of, of to, that, that was able to do create mass extinctions one after the other. And, and well, so that, I mean, that, 
wasn't Elon Musk who said we're all essentially cyborgs now because we're walking around with the power of a cell phone in our hand. But I mean, if you want to draw the natural conclusion, we really started that road to being a cyborg when you just mentioned it, right? When you started to, to control your natural environment from the other animals point of view, we'd already taken the leap that separated us into a, into a whole different category, right? And I think you bring up a good point. Fire is one of them. There's a bunch of them. How about the ability to, 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 you know, there's a lot of animals that forage, but not a lot of animals that plant the seed to create the food for them to forage later. So there's a bunch of things humankind has done when you just go, wow, that's one of those spectacular... It's not a moment, as you know, some of these things took eras and ages to do, like agriculture. But once you create something like that, you go, okay, there's just another thing between mankind and the rest of the animal kingdom. Right, but, you know, as you say, it took it took ages in many cases, uh, you know, thousands of years, if you go back far enough for one small change to really create worldwide change. But now because of this increased connectivity, again, whether it's social media or just planes or whatever, uh, the, the speed, of, the rate of change in our innovations and the effect they have on all of society is getting, that in itself is getting faster. Like now the second derivative of change is getting faster. I think about this all the time because I, th- I think it's fascinating because it's the question about, I mean, if you take, if you extrapolate, and again, much, people much smarter than I have done this already, but I mean, extrapolate the, the, the growth in the speed of the pace of change from what we've had, let's just say the last 50 years forward. At what point do humans become incapable of keeping, I mean, or, or maybe a better way to phrase it is, is there a point at which human beings are incapable of keeping up with it? I mean, for example, one of the things that is astounding when you look at the past is the diminishing uh, value of human experience uh, uh, as time goes on. So let's say you were a farmer in the Bronze Age. What you knew over your lifetime was probably valuable and viable information throughout most of your lifetime. So the value of your personal experience probably never really waned. Whereas these days, good luck using the latest technology if you're over 30, right? So so how long was your practical cutting-edge experience useful to you? Um, these are the kind of things, I mean, we talk about it when we talk about the, the weapon system uh, uh, power in the book, but it's really, you, you can extrapolate that toward the rest of society's uh, pace of change also. Can humankind continually handle the growth in the power, the ever-increasing and ever ever-changing growth in the power of its weapon systems? One would say... You have to say, don't you, that even if you say we can today, it's likely to reach a point in the future at some predetermined date where we can't. So extrapolate, you know, take away weapons and add everything, right? Um, do we get to a point where we, I mean, and, and I, I was even writing something, I was reading something on the age, the, the Hellenistic age recently, and it was an older history book, and it had said something about the Hellenistic age at the end had stopped changing, stopped evolving, had become stagnant, which is not something you would hear a modern historian say. But I thought to myself, is it possible that, that the pace of change could ever slow? Could we even imagine the pace of change slowing? So, I mean, these are all things, I mean, because that's essentially what that historian was saying about the Hellenistic age, was that at a certain point, it had run its course creatively. It was not innovating. I can't even imagine ours. I mean, our society would collapse financially like a pyramid scheme, I would think, if we weren't continually innovating. Right, because if you look at all, there's there's more than just one technology that's exponentially growing, right? There's, so there's computer oh, across speed. across the board. Yeah, across the board. Yeah. Computer spe- speed is growing. Genomics is growing. Analysis of big data is growing. So, so your point about the 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 bronze, you know, bronze age farmer, his skills somewhere in the world are being innovated on without him knowing 
probably within days after he acquires a skill. So that's it's, fascinating. And and now he would know and learn. So uh, you know, uh, uh, there's there's two directions I want to go with this, which is one is, I don't know if you see this in your email, but when I open up Gmail and, and read an email from someone, let's say they, let's say someone says, would you like to come to this meeting? At the bottom of my email, it gives me three choices of how to respond. And I just have to click one of those responses and it'll send the mail with that response. Like absolutely exclamation point. And it'll send that response. And now I wondered, is it, did it, did Gmail study my old emails to see how I would normally respond to these kind of requests? Or did it study a billion emails from everyone around the world to find the most common response from the entire human race? And I should just follow along with that because that's the best, <laughs> that's the best response. It's those are common responses. And I think it's probably the latter. So we're sort of kind of, you know, my skills at email are now s slower than Gmail is figuring out how I should respond to email. So it's even something as basic as how one should respond to requests on emails is being dictated to me by AI that studies billions of emails, not just my own. But think about how, and also think about how it changes the normal relation. If you think about most human societies before the modern age, uh, most of them had a certain level of value to elders, right? So you think of tribal societies always had sort of a, a special position for elders. You think of the, the early kingdoms and states in human history. You think about Rome, all those senators were the mostly the elders of the societies. So, I mean, these elders had a very important place. Today, all I can think about is, a, I mean, our, you look at the people that are the elders who are like in the halls of Congress, you'd be shocked to find out how many of them don't even know how to use email and yet deal with legislation all day long long that has to deal with that kind of stuff. So, I mean, I feel like the, the entire concept of, of the value of these elders that is almost hardwired into human cultural uh, history has been tipped on its head by, by the modern pace of change. And I mean, you mentioned, you mentioned the well-known uh, problem of us getting older and maybe not remembering as quickly or learning as fluidly as we used to. Well, in an era where change is going as quickly as it is, I mean, you feel like your elders should be 24 or 25 years old because after that you lose the ability to be flexible. Well, but it's interesting how you tied the word elder to uh, a, a geographic place with boundaries because throughout all of history, you know, history is sort of in one way about boundaries of societies changing and how it happened. So Europe, how the different boundaries changed over the past 1200 years is the history of Europe. And the elders are, are basically people within some set of boundaries who kind of told the stories of the winners and passed on the secrets to the next generation. And I wonder now if our boundaries are more about idea are moving from geographic boundaries to boundaries about ideas, boundaries, you know, or social media boundaries, you know, Facebook's got 2 billion people and we're all in like one gigantic community. I wonder if, if the notion of boundaries is changing and history will change as a result of that. And, and the idea of an elder will change the result. You're an elder now because you're disseminating information and telling stories to the entire world, not just people within Oregon or the U.S. or this hemisphere or whatever. Earlier, I mentioned James Burke, uh, the science historian who wrote The Axe Maker's Gift. I was lucky enough, 
you know, as one, as you know, one of the wonderful perks of what we do for a living is sometimes you can call up one of your heroes and get them on to be a guest for oh, your show, right? Oh my God, that is the best perk, isn't it? Is it so, being a podcaster? So, so, so I just fanboyed out in a couple of podcasts with this guy, but he's he's absolutely brilliant and wonderful, and he made the same point you just made that this idea of of the modern nation state comes out of an and you know it's a little like turning a ship. I mean, the 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 the, the global construct and framework is always a little behind the reality, and in this case. He says all these large nation states stem from the era where a nation being big with a lot of uh, uh, agricultural territory and a lot of natural resources, all that was of a huge importance and value. He goes, we're starting to get to an age where people can be uh, uh, connected in a virtual sense where you don't have to be the members of, of a contiguous state where maybe you have nothing in common with your next door neighbor. You can form a virtual sort of kingdom with people all over the world who see things the way you do or have a similar set of values or outlook. And he was suggesting that that small and nimble uh, may eventually, and not in the distant future, but in the near future, uh, um, uh, supplant this idea that you need large, contiguous, massive states with massive square miles. Um, it, it seems to sort of dovetail with exactly what you were just saying. Well, also, it, it, it's related to career. Like, look at you. You're, you stepped outside of the boundaries of, okay, we've got this academic institution of historians with PhDs, and we write peer-reviewed papers, and we go to conferences, and you were like, no, I'm going to just, I'm going to do a podcast and say whatever I want. And if people like it, they'll listen. And you, you, like you said, you developed your voice, you build it out. And I think careers should think of themselves in this way now too. Like you could avoid the, the big institutions, quote unquote, nation states or idea states that have developed around a career and kind of make your own path and see if it works. And tr and you could, if your podcast didn't work, you would have figured out another way. Maybe you would have been a YouTuber or maybe you would have been t talked about history and on LinkedIn, or I don't know, some other vehicle of doing it. And you would have found your way. And I, I wonder if from a career point of view, your path is very interesting to me because you've, you've done this. You've, you've defined, you said for yourself, I'm just gonna, I'm, I have this love for history, but I'm an amateur, but I still know more than pretty much everyone else. And I have this gift of storytelling in it and a way of looking at the nuances. So I'm going to share it and nobody could tell me no. And I wonder if people could, should, how, how can they formulize thinking of their career in that way? Well, first of all, I would like to say that I wish it was as simple uh, uh, in, as the way you described it, as <laughs> the way I came up with it. I mean, it, it was never so cut and dried as you just made it sound. Uh, but, 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 the, I, but the end result is is that, though. The end result is so. But so I actually have two teenagers right now, and I, I try to give them advice on this too, uh, as as all parents do, and I, I try to tell them not to fall into this habit, which is a leftover habit from an earlier age about jobs, right? The idea is to go and get an education that will allow you to work at this job. Uh, because first of all, we're all so unbelievably replaceable that if you want to have any sort of security, you're going to have to take what's very specific and unique about yourself and make that part of what your value is. Because if, 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 you, if you're able to somehow convert what makes you unique into something valuable, you are irreplaceable. Uh, there are a lot of history podcasts. There are history podcasts that openly copy what I do and, and say so on the, on, on the intros to them, right? It's a, it's a homage. That's fine. But they can't do what I do the way I do it because it's so tied to my personality, right? So you've managed to make something that... Um, 
that, that I can't, they, they can't innovate around me. They can't do what I, so I try to tell my kids, forget about this thing where you have to go and get some job, figure out how you can take what is unique about you and how can you monetize it and more than monetize it. How can you turn it into something that's satisfying? Because one of the things I love about what we do, what you do and what I do is that this is a form of digital stone that we are putting our personalities and our souls into. Uh, you know, they talk all the time about these rich people that want to take their consciousness and move it into some cyber cloud so that they never die. But what you're doing here, I mean, there's an old line from an ancient writer that said, writing is the only true form of immortality. Mm. But this is a kind of true form of immortality too. And can you imagine if we had podcasts from people who lived 2,000 years ago? how well we would know them, how their personality would have survived. I always say that my great-grandchildren can listen to my podcasts and they will know me. That's like a form of graffiti that you've left here on the earth for, you know, Dan Carlin was here. Um, and the same goes for you and the same goes for all these other people that are that are writing in digital stone. It's also the reason I tell you to be real careful about what you release because if it sucks, it's in digital stone too. Yeah, no, that that's that's interesting, but it's going to come with the the territory. So people will have a different understand because of the sheer quantity of content coming out now. People will have a different understanding of, okay, the Shakespeare of the twenty first century. He put out seventy five thousand YouTube videos. Some of them are bad, so whoever that might be. But you you raise something an interesting point. How does somebody? So someone listening to this who's either in their 40s and considering what to do with the rest of their life or they're in their 20s considering how to start their career how do they find how would you recommend they find what's unique about them like you said it took you a long time hmm I, I think it's an you know in the same way that I just said when you summed up my career and it was so wonderfully clean and nice <laughs> with no loose ends and and I thought it out all from the beginning I don't think you can really do that I think you have to I, you know I, I try to tell people um, I have some family members that I give advice to about this and I'll say listen life is a verb you have to go out there and move right you have to do something. And when you do something, it creates in, in a momentum and inertia that creates other things in front of you. So when we talk about, you know, how can you do this? Like you said, how can you do this? Well, you don't do that. That is something that evolves and becomes something you have done over time. You start doing it by doing something. And, you know, when we had first started talking, I mentioned the Seinfeld wasn't Seinfeld, the, the, the way the shows evolve and all these things. In other words, I didn't have the finished product then that we're, that we're living off of today, right? That's feeding my family. We had something we were trying. And that it's, the, it's the verb aspect of trying and doing that is, is what truthfully separates most people from most other people. It, uh, there are, yeah, I mean, just doing. You know, I, I agree with that. Like, I view it as um, uh, also experimenting. Like, people need to understand that it's possible to experiment with ideas very simply, like when you first did a podcast, you talked into a recorder probably, you uploaded it to, you know, whoever distributes your podcast, and that was it. And you can experiment relatively easy, easy in easy ways in, in most areas of life. And there's and, and like you said, I think by experimenting in many different ways is how somebody younger or someone, you know, switching careers could start to figure out what is, you know, lighting their heart on fire, so to speak. Let me, but you know what? You bring up a good point. Let me show you how weird it is, though. And this is, you know, as we get older, my dad used to have a line. He used to say, if you tried to, to, to map out your life at the end of your life, you know, connect all the dots, 
He says, you could, you could never do it because there's too many weird places in your life where you made some random left-hand turn that you never would have expected that set you on a completely different, unexpected path. So, for example... I, I had a head start on most people in podcasting because I had a tech company. I started with some other guys back in the late 90s dot-com era and that we were focused on trying to sell this idea, and I'm using air quotes with my hands, amateur content to, mm. to investors, which, by the way, none of them thought was going to be anything. They all said the same thing. If anybody was producing anything good, they would be getting paid for it. And my argument was the same one you just brought up, that, that qu quantity has a quality all its own, right? There's going to be enough wheat in the chaff to make it worthwhile. So the reason, though, that matters in our story is because that company failed, right? That was a personal failure on my part. But my job in that company was to demonstrate what the hell amateur content looked like. You know why how I did it? I did it with a podcast before podcasting even had a name. There was a big meeting we had at the company about whether or not we should even call it a podcast because that seemed to be a concession to Apple at a time when it was a brand new name, right? How come they get to call it a podcast? But the point was is that through that failure of that company, I was in a position to be at the, at the beginning, not the beginning, because we know there was a beginning before a beginning. But I mean, 2005, we started podcasting the month Apple iTunes started supporting podcasts. So I would never have been in that position had I not been in a company that was failing, you know. So, so it, it, through the ashes of a failure, but that was a verb, right? We were trying to do something. The next thing that's become my life grew out of it. Right. So you, it's, the, it's the funny way, the serendipitous way life works that way. And, you know, again, if it, like, it's interesting because obviously people view businesses as either successes or failures, but if you, if you viewed that concept as an experiment, no experiment is really a failure because you learn, you learn something, whether it works or it doesn't work. Thomas Edison learned which conductors worked and which didn't work. And that, that's how it happened. But it's funny. You mentioned that about the nineties, like at the, in the mid nineties, I was working for HBO and I convinced them, why don't you do original web shows, just like you do original TV shows. So they said, sure, go for it. We don't even know what this web thing is. And yeah, so, exactly. so I did, I created this website for them. It was on the HBO website called 3am and it was just me interviewing random people in New York city at three in the morning on like in the middle of the week. And I would, I, I viewed myself as the first podcaster, although I didn't call, I called it a web series, but, uh, uh, you know, it's, it's similar how the, 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 the background similar, you kind of, kind of the seeds of art and storytelling were in the web back then, but have been, have become huge now with over 2 million podcasts out there and, and billions of YouTubers and so on. Well, and because you were actually out there doing something, it created that reality in front of you that you were then able to take advantage of once you got there, if you can envision what I'm saying. Yeah, and it gives you skills, and it tells you what works and what doesn't work, and it tells you what's interesting to you. I would never have known that was something interesting to me until I did it. You can't you can't think your way into passion is, is sort of your point that you're making. You have to do your way into passion. Well, and as you said, you become a more formidable person along the way. Right, you can handle failure, you can handle success, you could judge it from a different perspective, you you learn that perspective. You know, and, and here's the other thing too, is that this is what you're doing in history is this is a meritocracy. People are listening to you because they think it's interesting what you have to say and it's entertaining. Now, in academia, it, it it's roughly a meritocracy, but not quite. It's also who you know, who are the peers that are reviewing you for to speak at a conference, who's going to give you tenure, and 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 so on. So, but but this 
you've moved yourself into an area where you could say, okay, I'm not qualified, but out of all the people who are not qualified to be historians, but still know an enormous amount, this is the right medium for me because it's a meritocracy and I'll let the people decide. I look at myself more like the people who are authors who write books on history rather than historians. And I look at myself as an appetizer. Like we always put all the books that we use as the material for our show. We put them all up on the website linked to places, uh, uh, you know, web bookstores where you can buy them because we sell a lot. We sell a lot of books for historians out there. So, I mean, I always look at, I mean, even if we were to make a mistake, cause we are not perfect by any means, I always feel like if you go and do what I'm telling you to do and buy these history books and I get you interested in the subject, you'll be able to correct any mistake I made, you know, when you read those. So, I mean, I feel like my job isn't to replace or, or be instead of those things. As I said earlier, I feel like one of the gifts that history majors have is the innate ability to find history interesting where a lot of other people can't without help. Like, I could never meditate. I would need somebody to help me meditate. Well, some people need somebody to help them be able to get into history, and that's what I'm good at. But once I get you into history, once I've appetized you, I'm going to turn you over to all these wonderful books that I used, you know, to, to make me excited and, and to make the material for the show. So I look at it as a symbiotic, a hand-in-hand relationship. Right, but nobody is going to read those books. Like, when I go to the, when I read your book, The End is Always Near, and I go to the further reading section at the very end, have you read this, the thousand or so books in here? Like, uh, Hoito's, Edwan's book, The Night Tokyo Burned, The Incendiary Campaign Against Japan, yeah, March, we, August, we, we, we used it. We used it in the podcast Logical Insanity, yeah. Uh, uh, written in 1989. Like, that's just the thing. Uh, oh, but here, you know, so so I'm not going to ever read that book, but I'm going to use your interpretation of it and your understanding of the nuances of it. And that's how, that's the little knowledge I will glean from that book for the rest of my life. I guarantee you, I will never read that book. It's and, a ferocious book though. You would, you know, those, the books on the bombing, like, especially like you go read those books on the, either the Tokyo fire bombings or the ones in Germany, I'm not sure human beings have ever lived through anything like like strategic bombing. So you go London, Rotterdam, uh, Hamburg, Dresden, Tokyo, Hiroshima, Nagasaki. That, when you read the accounts of the people who would watch these cities burn and saw what it looks like, uh, I find I, I don't think those are academic sounding books at all. When you read them, they're like they're like horror stories. And some people like yours truly are sometimes I, I, I'm fascinated and horrified by them at the same time. But that book is a is a page turner. You don't well, want to read it too close to bedtime, though. Well, well, but, you know, it's interesting <laughs> because we have we all have our filters into these horrific parts of history or not all, but many people do. One way might be oh, I'm going to listen to. Dan Carlin talking about it. Another might be, okay, I'm going to read Slaughterhouse-Five by Kurt Vonnegut to understand oh, which is awesome. the Dresden. Yeah, it's a great book. And that's, I'm not going to read a history book about Dresden, but I kind of get a sense of the horror of it from, from I mean, one of the best novels ever written. And so we but, kind but of let me, all, let me turn it around though. So, so turn it around. So let's say you listen to my show on the strategic bombing and you go, wow, that's really a fascinating thing. And then you read Vonnegut's book and you go, so you get a different impression, right? A different uh, view from the Rashomon. And you go, wow, that's a fascinating thing. And then all of a sudden you get interested in the bombings yeah. and you start reading. So, I mean, that's what I meant by an appetizer. I'm an appetizer. I feel like, I feel like some of these subjects are things that you don't even know. That's what, that's why history at, at a college level you know, I, people say to me all the time, why do you need to go to college? You can just read books and learn everything. I go, yeah, but you don't know what you don't know, right? So sometimes somebody has to say, oh, you would find this so fascinating if you only knew. And so you give them a little taste of it. They go, oh, wow, that is fascinating. So 
a lot of this stuff is stuff that people would be crazy about if they got some exposure to it and they haven't always had that exposure. Uh, I'm curious what you think of this because you, you bring up college and you bring up a very good reason to go to college, but now I can get that appetizer for free by listening to your podcast rather than going to college and spending an exorbitant tuition and getting into huge debt. I'm curious how, you know, you and I, again, we're similar in age. So college was a lot cheaper when we were younger, but now it's four or five times as, as more expensive. Uh, I wonder what your view, if your views on that have changed. And particularly since I have so much free uh, resources like your podcast. No, no, I think I think it's a mistake to think that. I think, uh, and it's funny because uh, I'm I'm doing the college shopping with my oldest child right now, and I I truth I truthfully believe, uh, and listen, I'm not saying that it's not without problems higher education that it doesn't need a lot of work. It does, but there is in my mind no substitute for it. And and I think when we think, and this is the mistake a lot of people make, and, and we talked about earlier, right, about jobs versus a creative niche and making yourself irreplaceable. I, I think people who look at college as a way to get a job uh, or, or, or is a mistake unless you're going to be a doctor or a lawyer or something where it's absolutely the path is geared toward that. Because, I mean, for example, I was a theater major for two years in college, and then I shifted to military and ancient history. So you ask yourself, holy cow, what is a guy like with that going to do with his life? And there were these handouts that the history department at the University of Colorado used to give. I remember it said, what to tell your parents about choosing history as a major to try to give you some art arguments for your folks, right? Because what are you going to do with that, right? Well, here's the, the rub. I use both that history and that theater stuff every single day in my job, a job that did not exist when I went to college. So how could you possibly have gone to college to be trained for what I do for a living now? And yet it did exactly that. And I use it every day. Right? And, and, so go ahead. Uh, oh, well, and by the way, you, you also do podcasting in a very unique way. You um, usually it's just you talking which I don't know that many podcasts like that. Like, you know, even Joe Rogan, he always has guests. He's always interviewing people. Second, you come out sort of randomly every three or four months or sometimes longer. And, and it doesn't seem to detract from your career as a growing and, and increasingly more and more popular podcast. Like it's a very, you, you, you basically defied convention, even in podcasting, which by itself defies prior conventions. And so, you know, I think, I, I think you got away with something very, very well. It's funny you say that because that's the lemons into lemonade thing again that we talked about earlier. There was a story that came out several months ago about the YouTubers and how they're pulling their hair out and burning out because they're having a problem. You know, they've got this audience hooked to a daily release schedule and you got to put out something good, right? When you have millions of listeners or millions of followers and, and they can't keep up the pace, right? You either burn out or you, or your quality starts diminishing or whatever. And I laugh and just say somewhere along the line, we, we inadvertently got the audience hooked to a, a very irregular release schedule with a long time between shows. And we've turned it into a positive. They now call it hardcore history day. The only holiday that comes more than once a year. And they mm -hmm. love the randomness of it. All the stuff that would be negatives. If any other person did it, we somehow accidentally serendipitously turned into a positive. So you're right. Right. When you said at the beginning, you you know, that I've got this wonderful life, somehow we've set it up. So, that, so somehow it's all working in my favor, but I, I can only take a little bit of the credit for it. It starts with that life is a verb thing that we said earlier, and then you try to navigate the ship along the way, right? Yeah, like, do you ever feel, though, uh, 
mid, you know, midway that, oh, maybe I should, this is interesting and I have an opinion on this. Maybe I should just throw out a 20 minute uh, podcast with my opinion on this, uh, you know, uh, to the hardcore history uh, subscribers. I think every single show I ever do starts out like that and then ends up six hours long at the end. So you see that I I have an editing problem. (laughs) Like, Jim, but you like look at like, for instance, the elections and say, hmm, I just watched the debates last night and I have a a take on it that's that's similar to some other take from history. This is going to be a 15 minute topic. I'm just going to throw it out there. I'm going to just blurt out my 15 minutes or my half hour and release it. And, and, and do you feel like you, you can't do that now because the listeners are so used to the heavy amounts of research you do? Well, we have another feed we started just for that purpose. I mean, you, you, you hit a known problem. Once you set up a certain expectation level, it becomes, it, you know, it's funny. We talked about how there are no boundaries, no limits, no rules, no framework with podcasting, but you can set up your own over time, right? Just by, like you said, your release schedule will get people accustomed to a certain framework, right? And then you then you kind of found you find yourself bound by that. Um, same thing here. So we we figured if we ever wanted to, so for example, we wanted to figure out a way to get shows out in between big hardcore history shows. Well, we thought, okay, well, we could do an interview, right? Interview a famous historian that's interesting. And, and but the people are not going to want that on the hardcore history feed, right? They're going to say, I I was downloading a show, I got all excited, instead I got some interview. So we thought, okay, well, you can't do that. So you start another feed, right? A hardcore history addendum feed where the expectation level can be fresh and we can set a new sort of a vibe where people start to expect something different. Because once you start an expectation level, yes, you, you, you have a hard time breaking out of it. So we had to start a whole new feed just to deal with that reality you just mentioned. Yeah, it's, uh, it's interesting. Now, you created a separate podcast. One thing I've been experimenting with is just changing the editorial calendar. So on these kind of days or with this kind of title, it means... James is doing an interview with someone and we're going to get that information. And on these types of days, James is just ranting. So I kept it all within the same umbrella of this podcast. So I don't have to kind of go for a whole new audience of subscribers, but I I kind of did it editorially that way. As long as your audience is sort of, you know, we talked about self-selection of an audience earlier. Over time, you create an audience that doesn't just expect that, but that becomes you know, a feature, not a bug, right? It becomes something where somebody, somebody down the line is going to be interviewing you going, that's genius. You know, the way you thought about that format, was that something you came up with initially? And you're going to say, you know, over time we sort of came the same thing we were talking about with the Seinfeld thing. That's how your stuff evolved. And now, you know, I do love that about the audience. The one thing about when we used to do uh, television or radio was that your audience was not specifically your audience. You inherited an audience from the previous show. Uh, you led into another show. People, might have just had the radio on all day and happened to catch you from, you know, the hours you were on. In podcasting, when they're downloading your show, they're downloading your show for you. And that creates a different dynamic too than in in traditional media. Yeah. So I I wonder about that too. And here I'm just kind of picking your brain for for advice. Like when when I was, you know, I feel podcasts have, have somewhat replaced writing in, in, uh, for a lot of people. And, you know, it used to be people would uh, stop me in the street and say, Oh, James, I, I love your writing. Or they send me an email. I love your writing. This one post really helped me. And now it's more about my podcast. But when I was writing, I was writing about my opinions. When most of the time when I podcast, I'm interviewing other people about their opinions. And uh, you know, I just, I just grapple with this. Like, uh, you know, after doing 
500 plus interviews with people who I admire and whose opinions I admire. You know, sometimes I want to get back to more, okay, this is what why people originally like me is because of my opinions as opposed to my interview style. And I don't know, it's just something I'm grappling with, like what formats to stick with, what, what to push forward on and so on. Well, listen, of all people, uh, a Medal of Freedom recipient, Rush Limbaugh once said, <laughs> uh, but, but he, it was a good line. Uh, they were talking about why he didn't do guests. And I know he's done guests, but why it wasn't a guest-driven format. And it was, a, it was a very good line. He said, because people then tune in for the guests. And if you like the guest, you stay tuned in. If you don't like the guest, you don't. Whereas if it's all about the host, there's a reliable, you know, the audience knows what they're getting. Right. You don't have to sit there and go, I'm going to yeah. tune in and see if I like that guy or don't like, you know, now, now you may never get a lot of people you might otherwise get, but the people that you do have are there for the purpose of, of hearing you say something and that's what they want. And I thought, you know, that's a good point. I mean, Larry King used to do a great, uh, a great show back in the old days, but, but if you listened to him, it was because you found the guest interesting. And if you didn't find the guest interesting to hell with Larry King, you didn't even tune in at all. So, yeah. so in, in a sense, I mean, and that's the self-selection of the audience, too. What makes Joe so great is he's got such, you know, his uniqueness and his creativity, because I've been on that show five, six times, and I got to tell you, he 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 tweaks things out of me that you don't normally get, right? Because he he asks questions I don't normally hear. So, I mean, there's a, there's a gift and a creativity to that, too. If you're a great interviewer, you know, you talked about storytelling and being a, a great storyteller. Being a great interview is something, I mean, I'm very jealous because I was a reporter, and I'm still not a great interviewer. You know, so I'm jealous of the craft uh, and, and Joe's fantastic. But if you're a great interviewer, well, then the attraction is, OK, I've heard this guy and I like this guy 500 times, but I haven't heard him talk to Joe. Right. And when right. Or Howard Stern's that way now, I mean, you listen to Howard and he doesn't even sound like the Howard Stern from 30 years ago. He's turned into this amazing interviewer where you listen to him and go, wow, I really see the craft. And I've heard this guy a million times, but I want to hear him on Howard Stern's show now. Right. Because Howard can really get to something interesting. So, I mean, I I think in in my sense, I tend to follow the Rush Limbaugh example of, of you're going to hear me so you know what you can expect. But boy, I really admire these people that can that can really find new and interesting ways to bring out things in people that you may have heard a million times interviewed, but none of the other interviewers got. Dick Cavett used to be decent at that. Yeah, no, I agree. Like I, I always kind of aim for that point in a podcast where somebody says, huh, I've never been asked for that, that before. Yeah. And that's like kind of a... Uh, I know I'm going kind of in the, uh, the right direction. But so, like I said, though, I'm playing with format and doing some more just on my opinions, some more interviews, and it's it's an interesting experiment. Uh, you know, few more few more small questions, but I'm just curious. You talk about very controversial topics. I wonder if you get hate mail occasionally. You're very likable. And, and you know, again, for many reasons, I think uh, you're, you're a, you're, you seem like a l good, likable person, but B, you <laughs> always, you always disqualify yourself in terms of having real opinions, which I think is, uh, uh, you know, endearing to the, to the listener. And even when you're controversial, you kind of look at a variety of opinions. So it's hard to, to really pin it down. You're sort of just asking out loud and, and, and telling the stories, but do you ever, uh, do you ever get hate mail? 
Tim Ferriss just put out a great article. Something yes. about the yeah, about, about so you want to be famous or whatever he said. Uh, and it was a great piece because he was basically getting it down to a numbers game. It's a simple straight percentages thing. I mean, they used to tell me on the radio, the program director used to say, no matter what you say, 1% of the audience is going to hear something different, right? So if you have 10,000 listeners, that 1% is so many people. If you have a million listeners, that 1% is a heck of a lot more people. Um, so we definitely get the people who hear things that I didn't even say. Then we get people who just don't like the tone. I mean, you get all that stuff. The advantage of the self-selection thing is after a while, they're not listening, right? If they don't like you, they're not writing you because they're not listening. Um, I, I do. I do think that the, I do think what you were saying though, the demeanor, the way we approach things helps defray some of that. I think when you're really strident or you really assert a very strong position uh, uh, um, in an intense sort of way, I think you, you in inherently uh, create another side that's angry with you. Uh, one of the things I've always had as part of my natural nature is a sort of a devil's advocate side. And so I'm always able to sort of, uh, uh, and this goes back to my grandfather too, who's the great storyteller. They used to say he was one of those people that was a great salesman because he could always see things from the other person's point of view. And I feel like that I have that ability and, and, and we use it in the podcast. And I think when people realize that you're not trying to shove a point of view down their throat and you're really maybe realistically trying as best you can anyway to get i mean we've looked at we've looked at the world from the position of the poor nazi soldier the poor communist soldier the poor genocidal mongol soldier i mean all these kind of things where you go holy cow i mean you know that's so i mean i guess i guess having an open and upfront attempt not not succeeding but attempt to try to do this defrays a lot of people's natural knee-jerk responses, if, if you know what I mean. I mean, yeah. they, they, they know that at best you're not trying to sound like an idiot <laughs> uh, and, and, and that if they could get you, like one guy said, I always felt like if I could get you in a room one-on-one, -on -one, I could make you see my point of view. And I always <sighs> feel like I'd like to be open to having you think that. See, someone who says that to me, I would agree completely because I tend to believe whoever the last person I speak to says. So, so <laughs> that I'm makes you easily, a very likable guy, actually. I, I'm easily persuadable. Um, but, <laughs> but uh, uh, something else I was going to ask related to this. Um, See, that's the but, fifty year old uh, thing we talked about. Yeah, I'm about having earlier. my fifty year old moment. I can't wait for that seventy year old moment where I completely forget everything. That's but, where you forget you forgot something. Yeah, exactly. The, the the unknown unknowns. That's but, right. The unknown unknowns. The, the, known, the known unknowns. Yeah. Do you ever think you'll run out of things to to talk about? I mean, there's only so much you've you've because you, you said earlier you you tend to veer towards things you've already been previously engaged in and 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 actively interested in. There's a finite number of those, obviously. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. We'll, we'll date, we'll data mine other, uh, like, like with the Alexander story. You notice we've gone into his mother now. We've yeah. Gone, so you just, there's a million stories connected to the stories you know about, but it will be if you could like data point it on a map. You know, you would definitely see clusters in certain areas for sure. Yeah, that's why you know it's interesting because when I was writing a lot and I, and I was writing every day uh, posts or whatever, I'd write a lot of stories of things that have happened to me. But I would slice them and I would take the same event and slice it in like twenty different ways, and that's twenty different articles. Yeah, so you're right. There's always, and I'm I'm sure with history, there's a, a thousand ways to slice every point of view. So I guess there there that that's the case. And you know, when you talk about the cons, you know, you're you could go. I feel like you could go on for seven thousand hours. <laughs> 
Uh, well, and, but look and, and look at the difference too between a show about a historical event like the cons, right, or or the First World War, and a show about an idea like the painfutainment one about about uh, uh, entertainment and and violence. Or we did one, for example, called Radical Thoughts, which was about uh, these these moments where you get this kind of 1950s uh, hysteria, you know, these kinds. Of, so I mean, th- those are examinations of phenomenon that involve human beings rather than individual events or personages or occurrences. So, I mean, I do feel like this becomes a wonderful platform for exploring lots of elements of history that don't always match your your history book approach to it. Well, uh, Dan, Carlin, you've given me so much to think about. This is one of those podcasts where I feel like my IQ went higher just by talking to you. (laughs) You You know what my problem is? You always say, oh, I'm not qualified to say this or, oh, well, I, I really shouldn't be saying this because I don't know anything. You're always pretty sure. I can't, I can't, I don't, just because of the way I look, I don't come across as reliable if I say, well, I'm stupid about this one thing. Just having, <laughs> just having glasses and black curly hair, people never believe me when I say, I'm really stupid about this. And I, and I'll, and they're like, no, you're not, you're good at math. And I'm like, no, I'm really not. And they just won't believe me. you, but you, you, you have that kind of like all American sort of look and, 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 but obviously you're, you're a great, in my view, at least from my perspective on the ground as a civilian, you're as a, a civilian, <laughs> as, you're a great historian. I loved your book. I love the podcast. Uh, uh, I hope you come on the podcast again. I feel like there's so many different things we could we could talk about. Um, but I, I do want to mention the end is always near. Uh, apocalyptic moments from the Bronze Age collapse to nuclear near misses. We barely talked about the book, but I'm sh- particularly with lots of end of the world fears happening just just in this decade that's only one month old. I think the end of the world has been discussed like tw- on 27 different events. But uh, perhaps we could talk about that in the, in the next podcast, but I hope you come on again. Well, listen, we talked earlier about interviewers who do a really good job. You do a really good job. You ask really different questions, and it makes it interesting on my end because, you know, you run into the same questions a lot when you're out there promoting a book. So it was fun to come on your show and, and, and explore some different avenues, and that's all you, you know? Excellent. Well, thanks so much, Dan. And Dan Carlin, once again, Hardcore History. Listen to the podcast. Absorb it listen to every minute of it and then read the book. The end is always near. Thanks for, for coming on the podcast. It's so enlightening. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. Thanks, Dan. You seek the key, but first you must learn the ways of precision, craft, and performance with Acura's all-electric ZDX, with a premium Bang & Olufsen sound system, up to a 313-mile range and a Type S variant, with an estimated 500 horsepower, the ZDX is their most powerful SUV yet. Unlock the energy when you visit Acura.com to order yours today.